Hey listeners, welcome back to part two of Shelly Turner's episode. If you have not listened to part one, please do go back and start there. Otherwise, you will be completely lost in the sauce, as my friend Kiki would say. And I definitely don't want that. You need to go back and get yourself all caught up before you dive into this episode. Now, where we left off last time is the police were just realizing that Shelly actually made it home that night. So let's get into part two to find out what happened. I'm Renetta Rideout, and this is Massage Noir Murders. While the police dug into the investigation, rumors started to fly and the community's support for Vivian began to decline. So much so that people even called Mary Mason and voiced their concerns to her about their suspicions that Vivian was involved in her own daughter's murder. There were just so many things that didn't seem right to folks, starting with the fact that one of the officers who took Vivian's original missing persons report said that she noticed Vivian seemed, quote, unusually calm, end quote. It struck the officer as odd because she asked her how she was so calm. If it had been her daughter, she would have been racked with worry. Vivian's strange response was, quote, you don't know teenagers, end quote, whatever that means. Then there was the matter of Vivian's last interview with Mary Mason. What happened was Mary responded to her listeners' concerns and called Vivian up for another interview. Actually, she called Vivian several times after Shelley's body was found, but each call went unanswered. Now, to play devil's advocate a bit here, Mary began calling just a day or two following the discovery of the body, and I can't say that I'd be racing to the phone to give an interview either. But to Mary, this was just another red flag. Finally, on Wednesday, February 24th, Vivian returned Mary's calls and went to the station that day for an interview. Apparently, she had also heard the rumors and wanted to clear her name. The interview lasted about 40 minutes, and Mary Mason came right on out with the tough question. Quote, did you kill your daughter? End quote. To which Vivian replied, quote, no, I didn't, end quote. Then Vivian offered up another theory, which again is just so odd, but whatever. I can't say it's completely abnormal. I mean, I would be speculating and theorizing left and right too, trying to figure out what happened to my baby, but this was just another cause for pause in Mary's mind and in the ears of her listeners. Vivian's theory was that there was another girl in Philadelphia who supposedly looked like Shelly, who allegedly had a hit out on her. Basically, Vivian was saying that maybe Shelly was killed accidentally simply because she resembled someone else. Honestly, I'm not too sure what to make of that theory, but I think it's oddly specific. Anyway, the interview ended and Vivian and Mary talked for a bit off air. 
And it was what Mary claimed Vivian said next that was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. Yvonne Laddie, a journalist who extensively and exhaustively covered Shelley's story since the beginning, reported for the Philadelphia Daily News that Vivian actually described Shelley's final moments to Mary Mason during that off-air conversation. She said, quote, Shelley threw her hands up in the air to defend herself. Her pearly white teeth were glistening, end quote. Talk about a mouthful and so much to unpack. Now, I don't think there's a way to rationalize a statement like that away, unless Mary just flat out made the whole thing up, which I highly doubt considering how strong her reputation was and she was not known for being slanderous or scandalous on her show. This statement was positively chilling to Mary Mason though. So she decided to call the police commissioner and she urged him to instruct investigators to look into Vivian. Of course, he asked her if she had proof of what Vivian allegedly said, and since Mary didn't, because again, this was off air, there wasn't much the police could do with that information. But believe you me, it was noted. Meanwhile, a few days following that interview, Shelley's loved ones said their final goodbyes on Saturday, February 27th, 1993. Her family, friends, teammates, track competitors, and coaches from around the nation paid their respects at Mount Carmel Baptist Church, where her funeral services were held. The heartache and disbelief lay heavy in the air within the church's walls. The room was filled with undeniable grief. However, there was one person whose whole demeanor stood out among all the rest, and not for the reason you might think. Instead of crying, raging, or displaying some other type of expected behavior, Vivian waved and excitedly greeted mourners. Now listen, I know people grieve in their own way, sure, but this just didn't feel right to a lot of people in attendance because this just wasn't what people expected a grieving mother to do or how to behave whose daughter had been found murdered. And it was then that the tide of the investigation changed and suddenly Shelley's cold murder investigation began to heat up. Vivian's comments and behavior earned her the attention of detectives who'd been busy looking for answers to their own questions. In fact, they decided it was time to bring Vivian into the station for a formal interview, but before they could move out, Vivian walked in, joined by Clarence and their 10-year-old daughter, Clara. Vivian was furious about the rumors and again wanted to set the record straight that she didn't kill her daughter. So detectives split the three of them up and began to question each one. Vivian told detectives that she was beside herself with anger because reporters kept beating on her door asking her if she killed her daughter. The lead detective suggested that it might be helpful if she voluntarily took a polygraph test. Although those polygraphs aren't admissible in court, they often either help convince investigators that someone is truly innocent or they open the door to a more intense interrogation. 
Unfortunately for Vivian, the latter was true in her case. The exam went on for hours and she was asked a hundred different ways from Sunday if she killed Shelley and each time she answered she didn't. But when the test concluded, it was apparent that Vivian failed completely. So what did the police do? Why, they turned up the heat of the interrogation, of course. It was during this final interview, after hours of intense questioning, that Vivian told detectives that on the night of January 17th, she had been drinking, which was customary for her. She'd gotten herself riled up on corn beer, whatever that is, and became belligerent that Shelley didn't come home at a decent hour. When Shelley finally walked through the door at nearly 3 a.m., Vivian said she lost her control and flew into a drunken rage. The two of them argued and Vivian ran to her room and grabbed a 38 caliber gun and forced Shelley out of the house and into the car. Supposedly, she was taking Shelley to the police station because she had had it with her behavior and just wanted her out of her house. However, at some point during the drive to the station, Vivian apparently changed her mind and instead drove to Fairmount Park, where she forced Shelly out of the car so they could fight, and that's when she hit Shelly with the gun, knocking her to the ground. As Shelly lay there, trying to get her bearings and defend herself, Vivian aimed the gun at her daughter and shot her over and over again. After the unforgivable killing was done, Vivian looked around the area for something to hide Shelley's body with. This was an absolutely stunning confession, but the police were convinced that this is what must have happened and Vivian's statement wrapped that case up in a tidy bow for them. Or did it? News of Vivian's confession swept through the community and people felt hurt and betrayed to say the least. It was so hard for any of them to fathom how a mother could so brutally kill her own daughter and leave her body exposed to the elements like that. While the community grappled with this information, the police set out to prove Vivian did the crime. They searched her house from top to bottom, looking for any shred of evidence that a prosecutor could use during the murder trial, scheduled later in the year. The main thing they wanted was the gun used to kill Shelley. Like in any murder trial, you want the smoking gun in hand, but that's simply not how this story goes. After relentless searching and combing through the residence, detectives never found the gun. However, according to a report published in the Philadelphia Inquirer, investigators did find two bullet holes in the kitchen, one in a wall, and one in the ceiling along with the bullets. This report also mentioned that those bullets were collected as evidence for comparison to the bullets found in Shelley's body. The gun used on Shelley was a 38 caliber special, AKA a snubby. This short barreled lightweight revolver is a popular gun for women because it's small and fairly easy to maneuver, according to the nrawomen.com site. Although Vivian appeared guilty in the eyes of law enforcement and in the court of public opinion, it was an entirely different matter when it came to the courtroom, and the prosecution had a very heavy lift 
proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Vivian did indeed kill Shelley because their case was largely circumstantial. Nevertheless, that uphill battle began in October 1993 when Vivian recanted her confession. That's right. Vivian's court-appointed lawyer, Jack McMahon, a defense attorney, formerly a prosecutor in the district attorney's office, argued that Vivian's confession was coerced. Hey folks, listen up. I want to tell you about this amazing service called OneRep. OneRep removes your private information from Google and more than 150 people search sites. If you've ever gone through the painstaking task of requesting for those people search sites like PeopleFinder to remove your information, then you know firsthand how sucky that is. And if you haven't done it before, then you're leaving your privacy up for grabs. Herein enters OneRep. OneRep will do all the heavy lifting for you so that you never have to bother sending in any letters of request or submitting a form online. They even send you a detailed report every month that tells you exactly how many sites your information has been found on, how many sites it has been removed from, and how many more are left to go. And here's the best part for me. You can even protect your family of up to six people by choosing OneRep's family plan. This is what I use to protect my family's privacy and I could not be happier. So I want to extend this offer for you to try OneRep for yourself and get up to 60% off. You heard that right. I said 60%, not five, not 10, but 60. Take advantage of this discount and click on the link in the show notes to start securing your privacy today. The defense's position was that Vivian went in to clear her name, but ended up being held in police custody for 12 hours without food and was prohibited from checking on her daughter, who was in another interview room. Michael Hines for the New York Times reported that Vivian testified on Monday, November 1st, 1993, that, quote, several police detectives had cursed and yelled at her until she caved in and falsely confessed to murder, end quote. Unfortunately for the defense, Vivian's testimony was put to the test under cross-examination, during which she admitted that detectives did offer her something to drink at least, and they did so more than once, and they even escorted her to the bathroom at least two times. Vivian went on to further confess to having told some truths with lies of the allegedly fabricated confession. Now, I find that whole thing interesting because what parts were true? I mean, if you're sitting in an interview room and you're being interrogated by police and you basically confess to killing someone, to say that any part of the confession is true is kind of sus to me. I mean, I don't know, but that could just be me. Seems to me that any part of it is a pretty solid indication that she did have something to do with Shelley's murder. And I'm going to guess that her lawyer felt the same way because he even said that while he would not go so far as to say Vivian was innocent, he believed she was coerced into giving that confession. 
he stated that Vivian confessed that she shot Shelly with a 25 caliber automatic pistol, but the actual murder weapon was remember a 38 caliber special and had never been found by the police. Meanwhile, all the other guns at Vivian's house had actually been recovered. And funny enough, Clarence actually did possess a 38 caliber weapon, but it was not the one that killed Shelly. Just a strange stroke of bad luck, I suppose. Another example of what the defense would consider proof of coercion is a statement given by little Clara. Remember, like I said, she and her parents were both at that police station when supposedly Vivian made this confession. And the police allege that Clara told them she heard gunshots from inside the house on January 18th. I know, that's huge, right? Because that would explain those two bullets and bullet holes that they found in the kitchen, right? Well, Clara was not actually allowed to testify. I know, I know, such a blow. And the reason for this is that her statement made to police had somehow been proven false. So, you know, she wasn't going to be the best witness. Plus, she's just a kid. Now, I don't know who determined that Clara's statement was real or not, but the judge ruled in favor of the defense that Clara's statement would not be included. Now, this was all used to try to throw out Vivian's confession in the pretrial motions. However, that strategy was ultimately unsuccessful for the defense because the judge ruled that the confession was in fact admissible and valid. Of course, this was a major blow to the defense and all but sealed the deal that Vivian would have to testify on her own behalf in order to have any chance of undoing the damage of her own confession. And this is pretty much what the prosecution was betting on. Remember, their case was super circumstantial, but they had that confession. As long as that stayed in play, then, you know, that was a mighty weapon on their side. But before Vivian testified, and I know I'm a little all over the place, but before Vivian testified, the assistant district attorney, Judith Rubino, brought to the stand investigators, expert witnesses, and Shilly's friends, boyfriend, family, her coach, and Mary Mason to take the stand all to testify against Vivian. They all painted less than favorable pictures of her to the jury. However, Vivian's eldest daughter, Trina Jenkins, actually testified for the defense on behalf of her mom. She didn't believe her mother was capable of murdering her younger sister and believed wholeheartedly that she was innocent. Shelley's biological father, Alvin Turner, was even called to the stand someone that Shelly hadn't even met before. And what he had to say was shocking and definitely didn't cast Vivian in a good light. Plus, he also brought evidence. Alvin testified that the day before Shelly's body was found, he received a box containing trophies, a ring, and a watch Shelly won in previous track meets. Along with the items were three handwritten notes. The first note read, quote, to dad, end quote, and was signed Shelley Turner. The next note served to inform the Turners about the next rally being held in Shelley's honor after she disappeared and was signed by Vivian. 
The last and most disturbing note was inside the watch box and was addressed to Alvin's 13-year-old daughter, Elaine, Shelley's half-sister. The note read, quote, Hi, I don't know you. My name is Shelley Lachey Turner. I was told you were my sister. I'm not sure where I was when I won this watch. Look at this watch any time of the day and you know it. Look at this watch and think of God and maybe he'll let you see Shelly Turner. Ha ha. I'll talk to you soon. Nettie, I'm your sister. Your sister Shay. End quote. What? What even was that? Now, if this thing doesn't sound sus as fuck to you, I don't know what will. Grammatically, it doesn't even sound like something an excellent student like Shelley would write, nor does it sound like anything she as a person would ever think to write at all. But by all accounts from both her sisters and her friends and teammates, Shelley wasn't self-centered. She probably wouldn't keep naming herself throughout the letter. She also probably wouldn't make light of the fact that she had a whole other sister out there that she'd never even met. I also thought it was weird that she wouldn't remember where she was when she won the watch. I know she won hundreds or thousands of medals and ribbons and trophies, but I would think receiving a watch would be a little uncommon and might be more memorable. So why wouldn't she remember where she was or what meet she attended that earned her that watch? But you know who without a doubt wouldn't know? Vivian. Remember, she'd never even attended Shelley's meet, so it would make sense that she wouldn't know, and I highly doubt Shelley would tell her sister to basically give it to God when it came to meeting her. Like, why not just ask if she wanted to meet? Even if Shelley actually did all the stuff I just said and wrote those notes herself, I definitely don't think she'd be laughing while writing it. The ha-ha was just so unnecessary and further convinced the prosecution that Vivian's confession was indeed real because an expert confirmed that all three notes were written in Vivian's handwriting. Why would Vivian give away Shelley's winnings before it was clear she wouldn't need them anymore? To me, there's really no way, again, to rationalize any of this. But Vivian's lawyer tried to do just that. I don't know if he did or how he could explain the notes themselves, but in response to giving away Shelley's prizes, he said, Vivian, quote, gave a minute amount of trophies out of thousands to that girl so she could have a hook on her newfound sister, end quote. Hardly a satisfactory explanation, but without court transcripts, that's all we know for now. After many witness testimonies and the presentation of lots of compelling circumstantial evidence, and of course the confession, the state pretty much summed it up to Vivian being a jealous, abusive, alcoholic mother who killed her daughter. Now, on the side of the defense, Vivian did eventually take the stand herself. She presented to be a grieving, wronged mother, but her testimony did her no favors. Under cross-examination, she failed to answer questions consistently, offering more contradictions than answers, and ultimately further validating her confession to police. 
She simply wasn't a credible witness, and the defense team failed to convince the jury of Vivian's innocence. On November 4th, 1993, after only three hours, Vivian was found guilty of murder in the third degree. So for those of you who, like me, had no clue what third degree murder is, basically it boils down to this. The degree of a murder all depends on the intent, or lack thereof, to kill. Was it planned or did it happen in the moment? Were drugs or alcohol part of the equation or did the killer go crazy? In this case, the jury believed Vivian intended to hurt, not kill Shelley, and she was under the influence of that corn beer. So, not only didn't she mean to kill her, but she was also drunk thus reducing the degree to third and not first or second. On June 3rd, 1994, Linda Lloyd reported that Vivian held true to her innocence and asked Judge Savitt for leniency during sentencing, but he was unbothered to say the least and sentenced her to a minimum of 10 years to the maximum of 20 for killing Shelley. He basically told Vivian that he said what he said and that the big issue with the case for him was that Vivian lacked responsibility and ultimately remorse for her actions. He reminded her that Shelley was sorely unable to defend herself and subsequently was shot many times. While justice had been served and there was a sense of relief that Shelley's killer was behind bars, it was still hard for those who knew and loved Shelley to completely rejoice. They lost the light of someone destined for amazing things. Her sisters will never be able to embrace and laugh with her again, nor would her half-sister and father ever have the chance to know her. Her friends and teammates will never again feel her unrelenting support or watch her set fire to the track. Worst of all, Shelley never got to escape her mother's grasp and go on to step into her power, all at the hands of her own mom. That's the worst part about this case to me. Her own mother took so much from her and everyone who knew her. What a profound and useless loss. I had difficulty with this story because to me there wasn't a clear timeline of events. I also question how and why Shelley went home when she was supposed to stay that night at her friend's house. I guess it could be that it was super late and she didn't want to wake up the whole household and so she just decided to go home. That would make sense. But it's kind of a loose end and I'm not sure if the prosecution actually tied it up during trial or not. I also kept thinking about the jacket because I know that the leather jacket was actually collected as evidence. In fact, a lot of jackets that were in the house of Vivian and Clarence were actually collected. Anything that matched that description. So if it was a dark navy blue, any very dark, almost black colored leather jacket was collected. I don't know if any of those jackets were proven to be Andrea's father's jacket. I don't know that because again, no transcripts. But like I said, it's just another loose end. Another big hole in the story to me is what happened to those two bullets that were found at the house? 
Considering that the case was largely circumstantial and the prosecution fought so hard to keep Vivian's confession tells me that neither of those bullets matched up to the bullets that the medical examiner found in Shelley's body. So that's kind of weird, right? Like another big ass hole in the story. And then let's say that the shooting took place in the house. Who's not hearing five gunshots in the dead of the night coming from inside their neighbor's home? Clara was there in the house. Clarence was there in a the house. No one heard gunshots. And then there's the matter of the blood. Not a single drop was found inside the house that would lead police to believe a murder had been committed in the kitchen. So basically they held tight to Vivian's confession that she took her to Fairmount Park and shot her there. So then what's the relevance of the two bullets and all of that? Like it's just confusing. So I really struggled a lot with this because at first I was thinking, well, maybe Vivian is actually innocent. Maybe she was pressured into giving that confession. It really wouldn't surprise me. Would it surprise you? That happens all the time. Um, but then there are other things that just seem super compelling and lead me to believe that, yeah, she did do it. It's just, it's just so weird. I always come back to the jacket, the bullets, and the lack of blood. There's no way that Vivian being that drunk would be able to clean up and do such a thorough job of it and get rid of all evidence before Clarence got up to go to work. It's just too messy. It's all messy. But here we are. And at the end of the day, Shelly is still gone. It's super sad. Anyway, when I think about all this stuff, I can't help but wonder, innocent, maybe? I want to know what you think. If you're listening to this episode on Spotify, you should see a question available to answer about what you think about this case. As always, thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written and produced by Renetta Rideout.